somebody else's rise in popularity. Maybe it was on the playground as an elementary student. You watched as your good friend became more popular than you did. Or maybe it was in junior high or middle school as we have today where popularity was so important that you, you dress a certain way and look a certain way and, and maybe you became jealous of the popular kids because you weren't one of them. Or it could have been high school or even college. I think we could all know that there have been times when we have been jealous of somebody else's rise to popularity. You know, it even happens still in adulthood, doesn't it? You go to your place of business or your work and you see somebody else getting advanced when you should have, somebody else getting promotion when you should have, somebody else becoming more popular in the workplace or in the field of that business than you are and you thought that you deserved that. Or especially in our social media-driven world, when you watch your friend on Facebook getting all kinds of likes and, and all kinds of things and all kinds of friends and followers, and you got like five followers, and that's because they're your family and they have to follow you, right? And you're like, how come I can't have that kind of life or be that kind of person or be that kind of popular person? I think all of us have felt that little sting of jealousy when somebody else became more popular than we did. Or maybe you were that popular person. Maybe you were the one who had everybody's attention at school or in the business place because you were the popular one. You know, here's something I've discovered to be true. Maybe you have. The popularity isn't always popular. In fact, that with a rise of popularity, there also comes a rise of opposition. You've seen it happen in, uh, in politics. Somebody becomes popular, but they also have a lot of critics. You see it in, in the sports arena. Some athlete becomes very popular, but with that rise of popularity also comes a lot of opposition. Maybe it's even been in the faith community. I have seen the rise of popular pastors who have been great communicators, great teachers of the gospel, who all of a sudden also have a very high amount of opponents speaking against them because of their rise to popularity. The reality is people get jealous and suspicious about other people's popularity. And here's the thing. That was happening in the ministry of Jesus. His ministry now in the second year of his ministry was becoming very popular. His fame was spreading throughout the region of Galilee into the further regions of Palestine. A lot of people were coming to follow him. But with that rise in popularity, opposition also was rising. How could people actually oppose Jesus, right? I mean, think about it. He was a miracle worker. He was a great guy. How could people actually oppose him? Well, we're going to look at that today in our message, Opposition Rising, because it happened. In fact, when we last left the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, actually in verse 6, we see that Jesus had just performed a great miracle on the Sabbath in the synagogue, the healing of a man whose hand was withered, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, left that meeting despising Jesus, and they went together with the Herodians, who were political leaders, to figure out, and then this is the way it says in verse, verse 6, to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That's where we left off in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. 
two polar opposite groups, the Pharisees who were like the religious leaders and the Herodians who were like the political leaders coming together. They were normally enemies of each other. This would be like today's, in today's culture, this would be like the Democrats and the Republicans, the extreme of both ends, coming together to do something. That's how much Jesus, his popularity was beginning to disturb those who thought they had the power. And so because of this death threat against Jesus, perhaps that was part of the motivation of why he withdrew from the city and went back to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we're going to look today at the the story of Jesus in Mark 3 as we see his fame and popularity grow. So go to Mark chapter 3, verse 7 in your Bibles, or if you've got a smart device, we encourage you to use the Bible app. Uh, If you have that Bible app, We have notes in there for you. If you just go to menu, more events, and find Neighborhood Church, you can see our notes there. Or just go to albanync.org. Our notes are there for you as well. But in Mark 3, 7, it says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake that would also be the Sea of Galilee. It was called a lake or a sea. Um, And a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they had heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. So what this basically means is people from all around that region, it reached as far as the original footprint of the, of the nation of Israel had come to see Jesus. Verse 9, because of the crowd... He told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So here we have Jesus. His ministry began around this lake, around Galilee. But by now, in his second year of ministry, his popularity has far outgrown his region. And people were coming from far and wide to see him and to be healed of him. The primary reason folks came to Jesus was to get healed or to be set free from spirits or to hear the powerful teaching of this new rabbi who was coming and preaching with authority. And people came to Jesus. And, you know, sometimes, and this is still even true today, sometimes people often come to Jesus for what they can get from him rather than what they should give to him. Isn't that true? I think about my own life. What was it that brought me to Jesus? Well, I didn't want to go to hell. So that was a pretty good motivation, right? But we often look at what we can get from Jesus like the crowds did. Heal me, set me free. But the greater question that his followers of Jesus should be asking is now, what can I bring to you? What can I give to you? We're going to look as this chapter proceeds what it is that we should be giving, what it is we should be doing as we come to Jesus, what we should be doing. And so the people, they they came to Jesus not with the best intentions, right? Physical relief from a problem, emotional relief from a, a bondage. They didn't come with the best intentions, but what I love about Jesus is he always gave them his best attention. He still ministered. He still healed. He still set people free. In fact, they began pressing in toward him to the point where he said, hey, guys, let's get in a boat. Because if this crowd keeps pressing, I hope you can tread water. And so they get in a boat to push away from the shore so the crowd wouldn't basically stampede them. And secondly, to give Jesus now a floating pulpit from which he would preach. And though the Gospel of Mark doesn't show us this, this is one of Jesus' longer sessions of teaching. Remember, Mark is all about the focus of what Jesus did, 
his action. The other gospel shows what he taught in this setting. So you have to look at that, the rest of that story on your own to pick it up. But he, he pushes away from the shore and he recognizes this ministry is getting very big. This is getting very big. So he knows it's time to delegate leadership. It's time to raise up those who could help him with the mission of advancing the gospel and setting people free. And so the next chapter, next chapter, next section in Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus doing exactly that. In verse 13, it says that Jesus went up on a mountainside. And so actually in Luke, it says that Jesus had gone to the mountainside and he had prayed all night. Before he picked disciples, he went and sought the Father and he prayed and had fellowship with the Father before he handpicked these disciples. But it goes on, and he called to him those that he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So they had two reasons, be with Jesus and preach and have authority to drive out demons. And then it lists the 12. What's interesting about this list of the 12 is that we don't even know some of these, these names. We, I mean, we, we see them in the Bible, but it's like, what happened to them? You know, there's a few we know, there's a few because we see them in the book of Acts, but all of these people were picked by Jesus. Now, he didn't choose these 12 people because of their faith. You know, these disciples, they faltered in their faith. They, they had some real problems. They had some real challenges. In fact, think about Peter, right? The one who actually is named several times in Scripture. He even denies knowing Jesus at Jesus' most critical time in life. Their faith faltered. So it wasn't because these were men of great faith. They weren't picked because they had great talent and ability. He didn't look down at the crowd and go, I think that guy is going to be a great communicator, so I'm going to pick him. I think that guy is really good with kids, and we need a children's ministry, so we're going to pick that guy to follow me, and that guy's really good with money, so we're going to pick him. You know, it wasn't necessarily that way. Do you know what they all had in common? They all had in common this one thing. They were willing to obey Jesus, and they stayed with him. So he chose this 12, and there's a lot of symbolism behind that 12, because in the Old Testament, the number 12 would represent the tribes of Israel. And now we have Jesus, the leader over this 12, who would establish a whole new community and covenant of God. And that would call, it would be called the church later in the book of Acts. And so we can thank God he handpicked these 12. We're a product of their work as we also come to follow Jesus. So they would establish a new community. But you know what? Being a good disciple is just a matter simply of following Jesus with a willing heart. In fact, you might say it this way, that Jesus still today qualifies the unqualified to serve his mission. All of you in this room as followers of Jesus, guess what? He qualifies you to serve his mission. Now, why is that important? Because a lot of you don't feel very qualified. It's not that you're disqualified because you're a follower of Jesus. He qualifies you, but he also enables you to serve his mission. Don't disqualify yourself. The disciples thought they could do that. Peter thought it was over for him when he denied knowing Jesus. But Jesus restored him and used him mightily. Don't disqualify yourself because Jesus, when he calls you, in the midst of that call, he gives you the ability to do that which he's calling you to do. He qualifies the unqualified. And guess what? Today, because of Christ's work on the cross and his gift of the Holy Spirit, he promised all of us as followers of Jesus are qualified to serve his mission. That's the good news that we see in the disciples that Jesus picked. He gives us the ability within that call to do it. Now, what were they to do? They were to do a couple of simple things. Be with Jesus. 
Now, that's harder than you think. Because being with Jesus rather than just hanging around Jesus, I know some Christians, they hang around Jesus. You know, they come to church, they hang around Jesus. But being with Jesus means there are times that you don't, well, often, you don't live for yourself. You think about others, you think about his mission, you spend time with him. You often may suffer for your faith. That's what it means to be with Jesus. And secondly, they were to go and preach. They were to go with power to preach and set people free. And so here's the, here's the thing we have to understand, that a byproduct of being with Jesus is ministering to others as Jesus did. So he commissioned them to be an extension of his ministry. He empowered them. The power they received wasn't to say, oh, it feels so good. I feel so empowered to live a better life. No, the power they had, there were to be channels of to reach out to those around them to minister like Jesus did. And in fact, he commissioned these 12. And he dispatched them out to do these ministries. And they came back with great stories, what we'll see later in the book of uh, the Gospel of Mark, of what they did because they were empowered by Jesus. But a product of being with them, friends, listen, if you're with Jesus, then a product of that is that you will actually serve others and minister to others like he did. Are you doing that? Because a byproduct of our following Jesus is doing what Jesus would do. Well, it goes on in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, probably the same house that he has been in Capernaum, the house of Peter. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. You get the idea? I mean, they've pressed in. I'd be pretty torqued off if that was me. It's like, give me a pathway to the buffet line. I'm ready to eat, right? But the crowds pressed in so tight, he couldn't even eat. So busy in ministering. And so when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, his own family, Jesus' own family, did not truly embrace who he was. In fact, they thought this Messiah thing has totally gone to his head and that he is out of his mind. Now, has your family ever accused you of being crazy? You're in good company because Jesus' family thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. What he was doing, he, they had heard rumor that the Pharisees even were out to get him, to kill him because of what he was doing. And so it could be quite possible that Jesus' family has had enough and they're going to go get Jesus. And, and the word, the take charge word is actually the same word used when you play, place somebody under arrest. They were going to go arrest Jesus and take him away from what he was doing, maybe to protect him, because they had heard this rumor of maybe his life being sought out. Maybe. But I think they also may have been concerned about the family name. What you're doing, Jesus, is bad on us. Isn't it interesting that his own family, his mother should have known, right? I mean, this was the baby Jesus, born a immaculate conception kind of deal, right? Um, she should know. Something special about this guy, and maybe she knows that in her desire is protection because she knows that there will be some suffering in his life, and she wants to preserve that as all good moms do. But his siblings didn't believe that he was who he said he was until he rose from the dead. Tough deal to be in a family like that, but here's the good news. If you have ever been misunderstood by your family, Jesus knows what that feels like, and he can help you navigate the wonderful dynamic of family dysfunction because he was in a family of dysfunction himself. They came to literally seize him. 
Well, it goes on, because we'll pick up on the family a little bit later. But Mark 3.22, it moves forward. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem. So they were worried about Jesus because his popularity was growing. His power was growing. They began, again, they're worried about him. They want to kill him, but they can't necessarily kill him, right? Because they are keepers of the law. Last time I checked, killing was kind of a violation of one of those laws, right? So they got to go a different strategy. They got to find a different way to accuse him of his guilt. And so they go down and they basically have a slander campaign. This is like predates all the electoral issues we deal with, right? This is primary mudsling number 101 right here in the gospel of Mark. It says that he is possessed by Beelzebul. In other words, what he's basically saying is the prince of demons Satan himself is the power by which Jesus is operating. Now, why would they say that? Why would they slander him? Well, think about it. If he really was operating under the power of God, and these were people who should know God, then they would have to deal with that and either identify him as who he says he is, or at least a prophet of God, if nothing else. But they couldn't do that. Their pride wouldn't let him. So they slandered him and said, it's because of the prince of demons that he drives out these demons. And so Jesus tells them some stories that makes their point look absolutely foolish. And he basically talks about, look, how how can Satan drive out demons? Satan, what would be the point of that? What would be the point of a house dividing? The house will collapse. What would be the point of a nation fighting against itself inwardly? It would collapse. And so he, he... puts a great argument to the point, and then he tells this little parable about a strong man. And he basically says, in order to to go into the strong man's house and plunder it, you first have to do what? You got to bind the strong man. And that's what Jesus's ministry was all about. Not being the strong man, binding him by being the stronger man. And so through the wilderness temptations that Jesus experienced, guess what he did? He bound the work of the enemy. He didn't yield to it. He stood victorious over it through the cross. What was he going to do? Completely abolish the power of sin. So he was coming to bind. In fact, that's what it says. If we go into through 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Jesus, of course, can't qualify there. He's never done anything sinful. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God that's Jesus, appeared was to what? Destroy the devil's work. And friends, he is still all about that. In fact, through the ministry of Jesus, he was tying up the power of Satan so he might set people free. He might plunder his house. He might continue to set captives free. And he did that throughout his ministry. But friends, guess what? Satan still has limited control in our world today. And we see the effects of his control continually. We see it, but a day is coming when he will be completely bound. Revelation talks about it. It's good news. But in the meantime, here's even the better news for us as followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit within us is stronger than the power of Satan among us or around us. This is what Jesus promised them. What did he say? Look, greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. He told us we're not going to wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But but Paul reminds us, look, we can resist the devil, and he must what? He must flee. We have authority in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit over the evil around us. 
And so we can walk in victory in our own personal lives, and we can be in a ministry of victory because the Holy Spirit within us is still the power that binds the strong man so people can find freedom. What does that mean? That means you probably need to pray for some family of yours that are in captivity under the power of evil and pray for them and step into the authority he has given us. And that's good news for all of us today. Well, Mark goes on, Mark 3.28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now, out of this small amount of verses, this creates a context which has brought forward a, a statement perhaps you've heard used in the church before called the unpardonable sin. Anybody ever heard of that term, the unpardonable sin? This kind of creates the context for that because Jesus seems to be alluding to a sin that cannot be forgiven. And the age-old question is, what is that? And have I committed it? You know, because we're all like wondering, am I the outsider now looking in because I have, I have committed the unpardonable sin? So before we get to that, I love the fact that Jesus lays down some good news first. What does he say? He says in the very opening, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander. Friends, there's good news right there for all of us. And that good news is that, that when there is confession and repentance, that no sin is beyond God's forgiveness. When you come confessing to him, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. If we come with repentance, as Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, as he preached and said, repent, each one of you, that we know in, in that sense of wanting to turn away from our sin, that we can find that forgiveness that comes only from God. That's good news for all of us. But that statement also seems to contradict the idea of having an unforgivable or unpardonable sin. If he forgives, then how does this happen? What is this category over here? So generally speaking, the unpardonable sin has to do with resisting and blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. Generally speaking, in this context, when they attached to Jesus, who operated by the power of the Holy Spirit, when they attached and called that evil, they were speaking evil or blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which Jesus qualifies as an unpardonable sin. But what is he really speaking to? Because some might be thinking, well, gee, I might have done that once. So maybe I'm toast. Maybe all I can do now is just wait for eternity in hell because I think I might have done that once, right? This is not about alluding to a one-time event or even a, a couple of times event. What Jesus is talking about is the heart of those religious gathered there that day who continued to push against and resist the work of God among them. Friends, let me tell you, the unforgivable sin is the heart of a person who continues to push away against the work of the Holy Spirit or God in their life. And because of that, there is a callousness that develops in their heart. And the reason they can't be saved is not because God is powerless to save. The reason they can't be saved is because they don't want it. That's the unpardonable sin. God is not gonna forgive you against your will. Well, too bad, I'm gonna forgive you anyway. He doesn't do that. For those of you who grew up in the Universalist church, the news here is not all roads lead to Rome. 
You're not going to all magically somehow go to heaven because God's going to save you if you like it or not. The reality is, if we continue with a hardness of heart to resist the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you to the Father, and you keep pushing back from that and hardening your heart, you place yourself in an area where you are unforgivable, not because God doesn't want to forgive you, but because you don't want it. You don't think you need it. You don't believe in that. So in case you're one like me who has wondered, have I committed the unpardonable sin, you know? Because I, I remember hearing a sermon when I was a kid once about this and thinking, oh, great, I'm going to hell. I know I'm going to hell. Because I'm sure I've done that in some capacity. So here's the thing. Listen, listen, listen. Here's the worry about committing the unpardonable sin is evidence that you haven't committed it. Okay? It's as simple as that. If you're worried about it, good news, you haven't committed it. Why? Because people who have committed it, they're not worried. They don't care. So if you're wondering and worried and maybe you've been resistant toward God, you feel drawn to him and you wonder if you could find forgiveness, but you're not sure you can, and you've been worried about going too far and wondering if he'll accept you. Listen, if you're worried about it, the good news is you can be forgiven by confession and repentance. Right? But if you're not worried about it, and when Jesus saw into the hearts of those religious leaders that day, he saw a resistance against what was happening right in their midst. People who should have known better. These were spokesmen on behalf of God who could not see God right in front of their face. They're resistant, they're stubborn, and placing themselves in a position where they were unforgivable. Listen, God desires that none would perish, but all come to repentance. If you've got somebody in your family who is resistant to the things of God, you keep praying for them. Because here's the other danger of that. Oh, well, my uncle so-and-so is one of those. So let's just cross him off the prayer list because he's not going to make it. No, you keep praying because some of you know you fought against the work of the Spirit when it was trying to get a hold of you. So you fought against it yourself. Keep praying, but understand that this is the dangerous ground when somebody continues to become embittered and resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus leads with the good news. Look, people can be forgiven of their sins and blasphemies, but if you resist it and continue to push against it, that's a dangerous place to be. Well, then it kind of ends, it wraps up here in Mark 3.31. I want to bring Mark 3 to an end so we can jump into 4 next week. But listen, it says, then, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. So they had heard about it. They took the time to travel from their hometown of Nazareth down to Capernaum, about 20 miles away. And so they came and they're standing outside the house where he's ministering. They don't even come in. Probably they can't come in because of the crowds. But they're outside and they say, hey, can somebody send for Jesus? The most important people are here, his family. So they send for Jesus. Look what happens, verse 32. And a crowd was sitting around them, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Now what does Jesus do? He's not disregarding family, but he's making a valid point. He says, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, listen. If Jesus was here today in this room, 
He would look around at those who were following him, and he would say, here are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, people who do my will. What is awesome about what Jesus came to do was to restore the beauty of family and community together. He's saying, look, I want to be with you. This is good news. I mean, I know you got some relatives, maybe a crazy uncle you don't want to be with. I mean, I understand that. I've been there myself. But, you know, the reality is Jesus wants to be with you. He wants fellowship with you, he, and he calls it family. And the way we get into the family of Jesus is believing in him and following him, just like he says. It's about listening and learning and believing and following Jesus because knowledge is not enough. The Pharisees had knowledge, but they weren't in the family. Following isn't enough because there were people who followed Jesus and never quite believed him like his family. But this idea, Jesus' true family are those who hear and obey his words. And he looked around at those disciples and those in the room today, and he said, here they are. And you know what I love about this is that when Jesus invites us into salvation, he's inviting us not into a cult, not into a religion. He's seen what religion does. He invites us into family. And what is family about? Relationship being there for each other, about sticking together through thick and thin, about being about the Father's business together because we're all in God's family. In fact, we find out later in Scripture, Jesus basically says we're co-heirs with him. We're like brothers and sisters with him under the Father about his business. And that is wonderful news because some of you, maybe your family has been very broken and dysfunctional. And I know our family is not perfect. The expression of Jesus called the church, we call it the family of God. We're not perfect either. But at least we should find a place here where, like Jesus, we're accepted. We're embraced as family, as brothers. Regardless of our social standing, our ethnicity, we are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And we have common ground because of Jesus. And we make that addition to the family possible by trusting in him, following him, believing in him, learning from him, and obeying him. So if those are things you find yourself doing, good news. You're in the family of God. Jesus is not showing partiality. You believe in him, you're in the family. So as we have blown pretty quickly through Mark 3, we've picked up some some key high points on the way, and I'll wrap it up with this. People often come to Jesus for what they can get from him rather than what they should give to him. And let's be really asking the question, what have I brought to Jesus? I've asked a lot of him, but what have I brought? To him. We've also seen that Jesus still qualifies the unqualified to serve his mission. And friends, you're not off the hook. I don't care who you think you are. You are not off the hook. He is commissioning all of us. And he qualifies the unqualified. And he does it all the time. We also saw that a byproduct of being with Jesus is ministering to him as others did. This week, you're going to have opportunity to minister to somebody at school, at work, in your neighborhood. Are you going to do that? Is it evidence of the fact that you're with Jesus? Because being with him changes you. And then because of that, it changes how you look at others and how you minister to them. You don't judge them. You come alongside of them and you speak into their life and you encourage them. You care about them. We've learned the Holy Spirit is stronger than the power of Satan around us. And that's awesome news because we can stand in victory against sin. But here's the big one I want to just land on. Where there is confession and repentance, no sin is beyond God's forgiveness. 
Friends, one of the things that most all Christians wrestle with is doubt and wondering if I'm really saved. Friends, listen. Confession, repentance. Those are the ways. And I think that becomes a normal discipline for us as followers of Jesus. I'm not perfect either. There are days I have to confess and I have to repent because I have attitudes that are out of line with his plan for my life. All of us need to be people who practice the disciplines of confession and repentance. He loves you. He wants you in the family, but this is the key. So right now, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And right now in the room, Lord, you know our hearts. I know that even in this room, there are probably those who have wondered if they have gone too far. And they've crossed that line from pardonable to unpardonable. And they've been on the outside looking in, not because you've placed them there, but because their own doubt and shame has placed them there. But I pray that even now as the Holy Spirit's working in their heart, you have promised that through confession we find forgiveness and that through repentance we walk into the paths you've called us to. So, Lord, for any in the room today who need that forgiveness, I pray you administer right now to their heart that it is available to them right now. Your word tells us, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us. So if you're hearing you're saying, Kelly, that's kind of like me. I know I'm at a place where I've been there and I need that forgiveness today. You call upon Jesus right now and ask him for that forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that you hear us when we confess. And that's a prayer you always answer yes. You always answer yes. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in our hearts and bringing us back to that place. Help us to live for you completely and totally to live in victory that you've given us over the enemy and to live on mission because there are people around us that are living in the same kind of shame and brokenness that we have been in, but we are messengers of good news. Use us, we pray, this week. This week, we've been with you. Help us to serve like you. In Jesus' name, amen.